0: Hey, this is Jeff Butler. I had a great time talking about how to get booked more effectively in the speaking world, covering specifically how many places you need to reach out to and also conversion rates, actual numbers in there. Great talking with Ryan. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the world of speakers podcast brought to you by speaker hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks you'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland.
1: Ahoy everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you and powered by Speaker Hub, a place where you can build your speaker profile, where you can find speaking events, and you can connect with fellow speakers. Speaking of speakers, we have someone today who is a speaker, he's a friend of mine, and he is making a serious impact in the speaking space. He is a keynote speaker, he is a workplace strategist, and he is the founder of Trinity Fix. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the virtual stage, Jeff
0: Butler! Well, thanks, Ryan. I think you're the first person who does the intro and actually clapped.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I couldn't help up myself. Clap. I mean, it's, it's just us <laughs> here, but... It's so we're clapping. You know, speaking of clapping, I was in the metaverse the other day. I didn't have my Oculus yet, which I just set up. And I was using the keyboard for all these functionalities. And I somehow accidentally hit the C button and then it clapped. And I was like, wait, what? I hit the C oh. button and it clapped. And so That's... I figured I'd bridge the metaverse with the real world here in clapping.
0: Okay. I thought that would have been copy,
1: but... I guess clap. No, that there. would be control. That would be command C, right? Okay. Or control or command on yeah. that. But I guess if you see someone else in the metaverse clapping, you could technically copy the clap and do it. I mean, here we are in this okay, crazy world. Know. We're talking about the metaverse. <laughs> We're talking about the speaking industry, which has seen its challenges, but with challenges, there are opportunities. And before we get into your insights on the art of speaking and your insights on the art of building your speaking business, Let's take a few steps back, back in time to a story that shaped you. Uh, It'll give us a chance to get a little bit more insight into who you are.
0: Could I pick a story that was related to speaking?
1: You could, definitely. That would definitely
0: be on brand for this. Okay, because I thought that you said speaking like outside of speaking. So I thought, oh, well, when I was going to the store and my when I was in elementary school.
1: But you'd be surprised how that story that shaped you still, we can weave it into who you are That's true.
0: We are speakers. We can spin those things.
1: I mean, life is all about stories, right? The stories we tell each other and the stories we tell ourselves.
0: Yeah, I just read um, The Seven Basic Plots. Have you read that
1: book? Not yet, but I will get it. The Seven Basic Plots? Yeah, but it's a big, big book on there.
0: I think it's Christopher. Are you
1: trying to say I can't read a big book? I know you can
0: read a big book, but when I, I put this in front of other, a few speakers and they're like, yeah, 700 pages No, on like story archetypes. No way. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Anyways, it was good. All right. Story. Yes. I'll have to go for the March third week of March, 2020. Ooh. Both know what that is. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. (laughs) So you just visited me a couple months prior. So I was currently stationed in Massachusetts Cohasset so an hour south and I hosted Ryan at my place which I was basically the property manager for my family on there my grandfather watch watching his place and so extra room had Ryan sitting there so I was in that house if
1: you remember Ryan wasn't and the room that I slept in the same room that Bob Hope would come and visit yeah it was something like that okay anyways yeah,
0: it was pretty crazy house. So, so it's a moment in time here. We're channeling Yeah, so this is so COVID happened, things are starting to fall apart. Third week of March, I remember having 70% of my revenue just disappear in that week. And getting to speaking, I started speaking when I was I say professionally, because professionally I say is when someone actually pays you to do it. I think everyone technically is a speaker, but not everyone's professional.
1: Yep. If you it. speak in public, then you are a public speaker. It's a scientific fact that you cannot argue either. I'll save the rest of the wrap for later. <laughs> yes. So since
0: 25, right? And so that was a few years later and to get started in speaking, especially from not having a large career is just, it's very difficult because it's, if you're younger, because it's like a lot more people are way more experienced, they can pull on different corporate backgrounds. So how did that go through? So I literally thought like my dreams of speaking were over. Well, because it's like I never lost that
1: much at one period of time. Well, you had an interesting, just to chirp in a little bit, I mean, you had kind of a rock star start. I mean, you made six figures, I think, within your first year. And yeah, yeah. I was really interested how data driven you were, and you had this really cool outbound approach, and you were firing up all of these speaking gigs. Yeah. And then the carpet just got swooped out Dang. from under you and me. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> Well, I think for all speakers, even though
0: on social media, they try to act like that's not the case. <laughs> on there, <laughs> Just speaking the truth on there. Because if you do that, then the event planner is like, I don't want to hire this guy who's all mopey. And for me, there's a lot of things that happened on there. One is I realized that as a speaker, I had to figure out if I'm going to at least keep my entire team. I had to lay off part of my team there. I had to keep everyone going. I had to get creative on there. The other one was I had to go back to my roots of computer science, which I basically said I'll never go back to again. And it wasn't that I was going to work for someone else, but figuring out how to leverage that into my future, which turned out to be a very good benefit. But at the same time, it kind of made me more versatile, my ability of being a speaker, being also being in the technology background. The big way it shaped me was that I had no idea on how I was going to bring back already like a company that was sort of like high revenue low net profit high expenditures that was before covid to low revenue high expenditures <laughs> and trying to keep that together so it was real scary on there but i'm i'm glad how scary that was for me because now looking at non-covid times it really taught me of like okay what actually makes money how quickly do you get paid like more of the fundamentals of business that i wasn't really paying attention to because When things are nice, you don't really know they're nice if they've been nice for a while, right? There's like a quote that says like, you know, tough makes great times, makes weak men, which makes tough times, which makes tough men, right? Men and women, just people in general. And I think that really happens to a lot of business owners on that side. And I guess it from a business standpoint, that was more of the takeaway from an existential standpoint, it was more of, you know, how bad do you really want to do this? Really asking like, okay, are you comfortable going back to a nine to five? And my thing was no, but as we both know, a lot of people did. A lot of speakers said, you know what, this isn't for me. This is something that was kind of this nice, easy path, but I don't want to go through this grind. And you know, it is a grind in some respects. Like speakers are amazing in making it look like it's easy, but you know, there's a lot of work into it. Like like to think of we're in the industry that we will work our butts off Just so we can work more on stage. It's such a crazy thing that we do on there, but it's, you know, there's a complete magical effect to it that's very euphoric. And I think that's why we chase that. It's sort of like comedians where they will just get the crap kicked out of them every day. And I don't know if you know much about like comedy dollars, but they earn way less than us initially, but they can earn way more if they reach the 1% than our top 1% on there so they have a very interesting field on there as well but it's probably that effect of being on stage
1: but it's fascinating how difficult it is for a comedian to find success for a comedian to actually be funny for a comedian to actually make jokes that make sense their job is to make it look easy our job is to make it look easy so that it's seamless but there's a lot of stitching that goes on behind those seams a lot of stitching. And what was crazy building up to when everything crashed is that there was more traction. There was an appetite. There was more people mm-hmm. jumping into the speaking space. I know a number of people that made that I'm all in and then things yeah. crash. So it, I think it was really pivotal for a lot of us. And one thing that resonated that you just said is this question, is this something I really want to do? Yeah. And so it's it was really a great reset not great as in like amazing, but like the great reset. And mm-hmm. I think that we're all gonna look back and be like, wow, that time really either changed us for the good, for the bad, for the better, however that would be. Well, let's shift to the art of speaking because sure. I believe whether it's digital, whether you're a 3D hologram, whether you're speaking in the metaverse, <clears throat> whether you're live you know, in front of 3000 people, there's still fundamental speaking principles that will be timeless. And I think that in certain times, certain strategies and tactics work better than others. Mm -hmm. You always see this revisit, just like your book about the seven different plots. There's more than seven sort of strategies for speaking. But knowing all that you know, and your stage time, and helping other speakers get stage time, and watching keynotes, and for all of those listening, Jeff is, I, I admire his tenacity at finding, seeking, searching data about other speakers. And a lot of times as a speaker, you really only put out publicly what you want and Jeff goes and finds it and then he analyzes it and then he critiques it and then he builds strategies around it. And so (laughs) of all people, you are like the researcher due diligence and you just like sniff out everybody's speaker skills. So I'm curious of all the things that you've seen and all of the experience that you've had, what are some of the most valuable speaking tips from a presentation standpoint that you can share with us in today's day and age.
0: Okay. So not business development. That's like, no, I'll we're going to jump into that after this. Okay.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. Presentation standpoint
0: on there. I'll talk about what I did on there. I think each person's different in terms of the development process. Like there's certain things Ryan that you do on stage that I have, n- I don't know if I'll be able to emulate cause I have a certain style. You have a certain style on there. So I'll talk about some of the things that I found to be the most useful for me personally to improve my speaking ability.
1: That works, um, and then we'll just cheat and take what we like for ourselves. Yeah, awesome. I think I
0: disclosed this strategy to you before, Ryan. But essentially, what I will do is, my biggest thing when I was starting out was I was charging five thousand, seven and a half, three, something around there, and I wanted to know how good was a talk of someone who's charging twenty to thirty k, right? Just want to know what that looked like. So what I did is I went on to everywhere I could find online, and I wrote down the. The top speakers out there went on the bureaus, went on the NSA site, passed people who won awards. And I basically wrote out a list of 40 people who are really good at speaking. And I found speeches by each one of those people and I downloaded the speech. So I didn't have to go online and I played the speech. And what I did is I wrote out the entire presentation in bullet points. So I would have like three pages for one presentation. And what I did on there is then I looked at the content. Where were they going? Was it a story? Was it a point? Was it a laugh? What was the sort of breadth of what they were covering? And I did that for each speaker. And this took months and play, but I really wanted to know, like, am I really crappy at speaking? And that's why I'm not being able to get a lot of money. Is it something, a big difference between the speakers who are up there? And Looking at those, I started to see patterns. I started to see, okay, they open this way or they close that way. Or someone who might be a lot more comedic style, like a Jason Dorsey on there, who would be able to do things on stage that other speakers might not be able to. Like you're able to see different styles and what you particularly liked. And so what I did from doing after those 40s, I would find speakers that I really liked more than others. Then I would find five, seven keynotes from them (laughs) online because someone posted somewhere. And I would do the same thing. So then I would see how that speaker changed their style over time. And the weird thing is I would watch, this was a big eye opener for me. I would see the same keynote from someone like Daniel Pink. That would suck. Like his first time or second time giving it. It would be awful. But he would go to Inbound where where we hung out and he would destroy. And I was like, why is it so much better? It's like, well, that's how it starts. You start off with that framework. You give a talk a few times for a book. And then you give it again and again and again, you start pulling different pieces of the content, pulling a joke there, putting one there to the point where you have this set of 60, 45 minutes. That is just every minute is just has something powerful in it and it really does well, but doesn't start that way. That really helped me understand the evolution of a speaker in terms of how they actually develop over time. But it also showed me the different pathways and techniques that s- certain speakers deployed and things I didn't like, but also liked on there. Like, I thought what was very rare in speakers is to actually have humor that hit. Because what's funny in our space is that when someone like a speaker is mildly funny, the crowd actually laughs pretty hard. But if you would go to, say, a stand-up or like a comedy seller and drop that same joke, no one would laugh. They'd be like, dude, that was the corniest thing I ever heard. <laughs> right? It's training wheels for us compared to where comedy could be. So when you have a comedian going to a corporate place, they can tear it up because that's what they do. I started to see that that a lot of speakers didn't utilize it, but a few that did. And I said, okay, what if I wrote a joke every 45 seconds or every minute? And I did that. And like 20% of the jokes worked. So my presentation was funny, but I had so many bombs in it that I could improve it quite quickly on there, trying to inspire to more. And the weird part is uh, Mariana basically said to me point blank in my speaking career, is like, you know, Jeff, you're actually pretty boring of a speaker. And she meant that because I was talking like an engineer. I was like, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Here's the four-point strategy that this PhD person developed. It's like, yes, but how do you actually put that into a format that people actually want to digest on there? And I had a real hard time as coming from an engineering background to the speaking world because I knew people who were way smarter than myself and the topics seemed really dubbed down. And I couldn't figure out why did the topics in the speaking world for keynotes especially seemed very dubbed down content wise. Like Like they weren't
1: very dense, you're saying. Technical,
0: it was like, it was very light. And I'm like, why is that the case? And what I realized is that The audience drives the content, not the speaker, looking at enough speakers. And I used to think that, you know, people in the speaking world are just going easy. They're not uh, hardcore data. But then I realized, you know, being in front of enough audiences, you start pulling up data and facts and like facts are important. You know, data is really important on there, but it's how you deliver it, which is really important And that style from going through all the talks, it tends to become a lot more of a theatrical thing than an actual quantitative analysis of some industry problem on there. That's more for boardroom stuff. But for the actual keynotes, they drift in that direction. That was another thing that I learned through looking through all those different speakers. So I know that was probably way too, I guess, fast, not fastidious, but I don't know.
1: I like the word fastidious. I don't know what it means, but you definitely did blow through a lot of a lot of stidious is fastly. That's so good. I want to dive in just a couple of divestonians into these. Sure, divestonians, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so humor that hits. What I'm hearing yes. is that in the patterns that you saw from some of the more successful speakers, they utilized humor. Yes but they weren't necessarily funny right out the gate. It took time to experiment. It took time to feel out the audience and right. it took trial and error to get that 20% to a higher degree, correct? Right, correct. But what I'm hearing is that you can't be funny unless you try and sometimes yes. if you try to be funny, you're actually not funny, but they might actually laugh anyways or it's just kind of a, a gamble you essentially. That,
0: you won't be funny right out of the gate. I mean, few people are born with it, but I'm trying to speak for someone, most people, which is you're not really know what's that funny. You really know what's funny. So you have to test a whole bunch of stuff.
1: And then when in doubt, you just make up words and hopefully people laugh and think oh, that's funny. Oh, yeah. I
0: remember the first time I made my, my first joke I ever had. And it was basically I was rifting. I get kind of mad sometimes, as you know, Ryan, I'll start going off on something. <laughs> and I said about my background, I said, yeah, I worked at Nokia when they were back when they were cool. And then the, t- the crowd laughed. And I was like, why was that funny? Cause I was being serious. Like I was literally thinking they were cool Like the time that you can throw a Nokia phone at someone who's trying to assault you on a street and, you know, it's like a brick. Yeah. Throw it in a washer and it'll survive. And, you know, it's like, it'll survive an apocalypse along with a cockroach, right? They were really durable products. And I heard the audience laugh on that. And I was like, what in the hell was that? And so I had to go back and I wrote it down. And so every time I gave that same spiel, the audience laughed but laugh differently in different places and did laugh differently depending on how fast or slow I was talking. And that's what kind of gave me an idea for, okay, different audiences react to different jokes differently on there. Like there are certain jokes that I put in about millennials on there that if like you have a very conservative, older, let's say blue collar crowd, they'll just ho- holler about like certain millennial jokes. Like I had once a stand ovation from a a parody millennial video that I had on one event and others where like people were like, yeah, that was funny, but I didn't get a sign ovation for it. (laughs) So
1: So. what I'm hearing is that you're in an effort to entertain the audience, knowing, like you said, that the audience determines the content that you're not going to hit them all, but you have to go up and you have to swing a little bit. And humor was one of the ways that these higher paid top-notch speakers were getting across and they're not killing the audience with data or facts they're actually playing to the audience, playing with the audience so that it is more of an entertainment and not like a force feed, reader's digest, here's all the information, take it now.
0: Yeah, because I, tr- I broke it down into more of like factual arguments, stories, jokes. And I tried to see that split on there. And what I found is that from a content perspective, I was well more advanced than I needed to be. And then from an entertainment perspective, Storytelling side, I really lacked that compared to say the other individuals in the field. So, more right now, me talking about humor is just it's such a weird thing learning about it because it's it seems like you go up there and you're just funny, but it's like actually, you're not. The reason why the pros are able to land those jokes is because they've been telling them for 10 years,
1: right? Little tweaks here and there, and they're (laughs) just getting it.
0: You're just like, here, I want to make the audience laugh. Boom, drop a joke. And I remember, like, in one of my what was it, Christmas someone was asking me about what I did. So I'm like, oh, let me see if this works. And I just dropped like five different jokes for my presentation, like in one conversation, like each time they were laughing. I'm like, dang, that's so weird. But you have to discover those. You have to write your own humor. Like It's not like you can pull, um, oh, I can't say her name, but you can't copy jokes of other people and try. You can try, but I just, you have to have it in your own style on that. Like I'll never be able to jump on a stage and run away from a bear like you did on my TEDx <laughs> talk. Like that's, that's just something that I'm like, oh my God. you know.
1: And if you haven't seen my first TEDx talk, it's called How to Not Get Chased by a Bear. And that's what <laughs> he's talking about. So what I'm hearing is that it's really about discovery. And what I yes. think is the biggest takeaway here, and no offense, but you're not known as the funniest guy, but I like I the conversation has led to humor in your exploration of how to discover humor. And you did that by looking at data. And this goes back to your data-driven engineer mind. So if you're a speaker out there, I challenge you to look at your keynotes, to look at the recordings that you have of your talks and see if you can look at them in somewhat chronological order. Notice what's working, notice what's not working, and then experiment. That's what I'm hearing from you, Jeff, right? You did this trying to search other speakers, but you could easily take this and put it on yourself to really analyze, right?
0: Yeah. And a great way of doing that is most people have presentations. And so basically having say a separate sheet where you have all the slides, what your points are on the major ones, and then whatever jokes or sort of stories you have after the presentation, reviewing it, pulling out maybe 10, 20% of your weakest material and putting out better material in those areas on there. And you have those sheets that basically carry like they mature over time. I use a Google doc. And so you can kind of track the, history of edits on there, which is nice, but it's a really good way of monitoring that progress really easily and improving your material.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the Jeff Butler digital research approach to your own craft to find patterns and see what works and doesn't work to formulate your speaker algorithm. Now you do it in a Google docs and type it. I had Sarah Wise on here who is an amazing speaker and I've seen her do a lot of multimedia. And Mm -hmm. she shared with me that she structures her talks with post-it notes. And it sounds very similar where she'll have a joke or she'll be, you know, here's a story, here's a fact, here's this. And so she actually can lay them out almost like in a timeline. And it sounds like it's that same thing where you're taking these elements and you're just readjusting and rerouting them.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the technique she's using is for writing a new presentation on there. Mine I'm more trying to say is how to actually have your entire presentation in, say, a digital written format on there that you can go back and revise over time on there. Because she's probably going to go back and say, okay, what does she do after? She's going to go back and look at our material and say, what worked? What didn't work? Well, when you have your post-it notes on the wall, I mean, you can technically, but what if you have your next talk is in two months of that same one? Like, what do you do with it? Leave it on the wall for two months on there? Like, it's... It's a little difficult on there, but yeah, I think we definitely are employing similar techniques on there. I just find sticky notes a little bit cumbersome.
1: I understand. And that makes sense for your personality. I love my sticky notes and they're everywhere. But <laughs> could we apply this same research-driven approach to the digital presentations that we're seeing these days? Though,
0: Because the feedback loop's harder to track. When a presentation in person, you're watching the audience possibly more than you're speaking. Because you need to know when you're supposed to pull back, pull forward. Do I need to energize them? Am I too much on there so you're watching them digitally? That's hard to gauge. I know your digital game is 99th percentile of the speakers out there, <laughs> it's on a whole new level. If you want to look at digital game, look at Ryan Folins. It's insane. And I mean that in the biggest compliment I can give the you
1: the good insane. I got it. All right. Yeah, like your, Are you trying to be your, funny? Your, is that what you're doing? Because that's funny. Asylum. <laughs> okay, good. Right. You're laughing, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't doubt, so, call somebody insane and it'll get him to laugh. Perfect. A little Freudian
0: slip there. So that's the harder part though. So what I would do to gauge the feedback is I would have polls in my presentation every 10 to 15 minutes with sort of quizzes of what we've covered. It's a technique that I learned from a university that was looking at retention of material. And they found that if you do have those periodic quizzes every 10 to 15 minutes, retention kicks up by 20 I don't know the exact number, but it's only like 20, 25%. So I learned that from a university. I put that in my presentations. And for virtual, I can see how much do people engage in the comments. Now, there's so many more variables in there. I can't give as strong of a gauge of what's good and what's not on there, as I would be say in person on there. Because if I could see everyone's screens, awesome, but I can't control their environment. Like, I don't know if they're losing focus because my talk is poor or it's because their baby started crying.
1: Right. I don't know. So in the digital world, there's maybe too many variables to get as accurate of data when you're trying to find out what's going on. correct. Yes. All right. Well, you've heard it here. Take a computer programmer's approach to evaluating your speeches and other speeches, knowing that there's going to be some form factor weirdness when it comes to the digital. But what I think, whether it's digital or in real life that you're analyzing, this idea of looking to see what works and understanding that things will improve over time. I think that's pretty sage advice for the stage. So I thank you for that. 100%. Let's transition to building your business, to getting onto more stages. Cause I know you're still helping people do that. We've yeah. even got you connected with Andreas at speaker hub to talk about, you know, even if there's synergy there, but mm. the world has changed and it continues to sort of become, it's continuing to be a challenging environment for speakers. So, How are you navigating this new world? How are you building a speaking business? How do you help others build a speaking business? For those who are like, ah, I want this to work, but I can't get it to work. What does Jeff say?
0: Yeah, Jeff says a lot. Well, the first thing is... (laughs) See, that was funny. Now you're like watching everything I'm I am, I'm going to be
1: data analyzing.
0: Good, thank you. I like to approach this more from an engineering perspective on there. So the first question I'll ask someone is, okay, so in your speaking business, what is the one thing you're trying to solve? If you're trying to get more speaking engagements, just off the top of your head. I think we've talked about this. Yeah. Soon. Well,
1: and then do they have an easy time answering that question? Cause when I ask well, people similarly, I think there's nothing more important than understanding the problem that you solve, but there's nothing more difficult than communicating the problem that you solve.
0: Right. So from yours, it's more of the side of the communication standpoint. I guess I probably should have framed it more of a marketing standpoint, like in the world of marketing for speaking, what problem are you trying to solve? And the thing you're trying to do is getting in front of or having conversations with event planners who have the budget that can afford you. You maximize that variable, you'll be booked more. Just through law of numbers on there. How you get to that can change. I know people who write books. I know people who go to networking events to do that. I know people who do LinkedIn strategies to do that. I know people who were spending over $100,000 a year on Google Ads to do that on there. They all come to that one area. So the my technique that I use is just one of those areas to get to that point on there. And I think most people can agree if they're going to be booked more, it's going to have that one common variable regardless of the approach that you use. And that's so, the meeting planner. That's the meeting planner. Like, yeah, whoever is the, it's basically the, the qualified individual, that's meeting planner, event planner, yeah, program manager for the actual event. So then the next question that becomes, how do I get to that point? There's a lot of different ways to approach it on there. But I always like to look at it from, well, there's two ways you can take this. One is why would you care about this in the first place? Why don't you just have a great talk? that You give one time. And if you give it that one time, people are going to love you. Here's why. If you sit down with someone like a plumber, and you're their business coach, and they're hiring you to bring them more business, uh, coach them on getting more business, are you going to tell them to become a better plumber or figure out how to get better Yelp reviews and referrals? You first have to get clients in order to get better.
1: Mm, this goes back to the first few speeches you're seeing with even some of the highest paid people. They, it wasn't that great, but you're saying they got on stage to have that opportunity.
0: And that's why, yes, you have to go on stage to get better. And I knew that I would be taking free gigs, a couple hundred bucks, thousand bucks here and there in order to get those reps. Once I have the reps, then I could worry more about referrals from there. The weird thing is that some people in our industry propagate this idea that if you give if a great talk, it's going to bring you all the business. That is inherently not true and here's why. People say, well, if you get two new speaking engagements for every one talk, you know, that's a great number. Is it really? That's two to the end, which means if you give one talk, you will then get two talks in that. And then from those two talks, you get four, and those four to eight. That means you'll never have to market again for the rest of your life. If you look at the top speakers in the world, are they marketing? Yes. Okay, they have the best speeches, they have the best brands, somehow they still have to market, which
1: tells me that the referral rate is not that high. And I would agree because if you're at an event where you're paid to be there, the audience isn't necessarily a bunch of market or they're not necessarily a bunch of event planners that are looking to do their own events. They might see you and be compelled to like mention it to their boss, but guess what? Their boss already hired you to be there in the first place. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yes. That's what I mean on there. And a lot of people, including myself kind of fell for that when people were like here, let me be your speaker coach and work on your speech all day. We love to work on our content all day. We love to do that, but getting on stage. So your content's like, okay, it's porn, you know, But if you can't do that, what's the point? So you at least have to have some sort of marketing side. That's the first thing I would tell speakers. The second is don't be surprised if it's hard. And here's why. One of the things (laughs) that was funny, I like that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, most people, okay, in our space, as you know, most people who market services that are like speaker coaching services say, oh, it's so easy to get on stages. Here's my top clients that I have who are killing it. And of course, you look on their Instagram, they're like crying, you know, because of the pandemic, but it's all weird, but because people try and make it easier. But I also was affected by that because I'm like, okay, I know my speech material. I've seen my ratings. I have pretty decent ratings. I have good branding considering my brand. I've been on TEDx. I've spoken at companies like Google, Amazon, LinkedIn. I'm pretty, I'm okay. I'm not amazing. I'm okay. Why is it so hard? Running the data. If you look at the amount of speakers who are represented by bureaus, it's around 25,000. The amount of paying engagements or amount of engagements that we have, we have a sample size of around 20,000 engagements. Some of the larger places that have engagements go up to around 50,000. I'm talking about in one year. The amount of ones that are paying in there are 60%. From that 60%, the ones that have bringing in speakers who might be charging more than $10,000, it drops to something around the 15%. So you take 15% of something like 20 or let's say 100,000, it would be nice. You have 15,000 engagements for 25,000 speakers.
1: Where the job of those representing bureaus is to book people in those spots. And they're motivated for the top spots because they're commission-based. And so you're saying there's this feeding piranha frenzy over those big-
0: Yes. There are more speakers than there are engagements in that respect. That was a big epiphany to me when I was building Trinity Fix. I'm like, oh my gosh, this makes complete sense. Because it's way easier to throw up a site and do all this stuff than there are, say, events that are happening on there.
1: And it's easier to create a speech and say you're a speaker than it is to get on the actual stage.
0: Yes. So you have all these kind of weird effects. So know that it's a wonderful place to be in, but most speakers don't get booked that much. That's why you have NSA where they have like their top five every year they call fame speakers. They get booked maybe 100 times a year. That's like top of the top right? Those are people are killing it. They're doing a great job, right? They really got their stuff together for their speaking business. So my point being is, it's going to be difficult from that standpoint, from a mathematical perspective, because most people, when they think of speaking engagements, they think of money. There's a lot of speaking engagements out there. A lot of them don't have money, but the main thing is knowing, okay, those are what the numbers are. Now, how do you actually do that? Well, there's a lot of different routes. The reason why I chose email outbound and going directly to event planners is because I'd rather just... the whole process of inbound or pay-per-click ads i'd rather just go directly so i've done the common approach of collecting data on the event planners and having employees that would go and reach out and hey do you have an event this topic jeff speaks on this you think there's a synergy
1: if so let's chat literally that so you're just going straight after the one common thread that you need in order to get booked on the stage and that's connecting with that planner so you're using an email and a marketing approach that gets those people on the phone.
0: call, yeah. Whatever those two main channels, sometimes LinkedIn, sometimes even text messaging on there, which weirdly enough does have some effect, but
1: it's hitting this. But you end up getting them on the phone. Like the phone is not dead. Exactly. That's That's the main thing is solving
0: that one. How do I get to that one point? Because I could sit back and write a book, but I spend then six months, but it doesn't guarantee that I'm going to get in front of someone. I'd rather just go straight to the source. Most people don't have the stomach for that, which I totally get. It's not easy to be told. Like in the beginning, I was being booked for one out of every 105 engagements I was reaching out to.
1: So you got 104, no thank yous until you got that one, yes.
0: But I had myself, a few other people on my team, and I did enough of those knocking on those numbers to break six figures in the first year. A lot of people wouldn't want to be doing that. But I knew I could just do more of that that was working to get to that end point. And then the brand was stronger. Now it's a better ratio, like for instance, the amount of gigs that we uh, quote on there to what we close is around 18%. So if I close $100,000 worth of business, we close about 18% of it.
1: Interesting. All right. So if we take a a Janet Jackson two steps back to then take one step forward, that's what we're talking about. So we were all shaped by March 2020 when we realized how real the pandemic was going to really impact our speaking business. Yes. You had to completely pivot and look at what was benefiting you to now, how can you benefit all of these speakers who are in the same boat that are scrapping to make a full-time professional career out of it work? Right. Looking at your engineering degree and the same type of tenacity that made you find sequential speeches from some of the most successful speakers you looked and found the incremental improvements, these Mm -hmm. little fine-tuned tweaks, humor being one example, and there could be a number behind that. But the takeaway is that the opportunity for them to be on stage was the opportunity for them to improve their speech. And so instead of focusing on hiring the speaking consultants and getting your keynote so that it's just ready to go, I'm hearing that it's better to spend a lot of that time and effort and energy to get onto the stage, get in touch with the actual event planner to then get up there. Yeah. And I've heard in a few different versions that if you get hired by a planner and you're okay, it's okay. Yeah. If you're good, it's okay. If you're yeah. freaking brilliant, it's okay. Yeah. But if you suck, it sucks for them. They might lose their job. And so you just have to be good enough for an insurance policy to make sure that you don't suck, right? Yeah. But then with each stage, you get better and better. And as you see these people that are successful raising to that top, they've got the stage time. So channeling a data-driven approach with 104 no's for everyone, Mm -hmm. yes, you are realizing and grinding through the fact that this is not easy. It is not something that just sort of lands in your lap. And in this new digital space, I think that's really, really the case. Because now you have everybody chasing after these digital events that don't really have the money. But maybe we can look at that as an opportunity to get better at our speaking.
0: Yeah. And to expand on a few things you said, I don't want to bash a speaking coach who's specifically to coach people to speak. I'm more just saying when you're starting out, that is less of a worry than actually getting to the stage. If you get to a few stages and you get them on the calendar, then I say, okay, maybe not call up the $10,000 coach. Maybe you go to the Chamber of Commerce or Toastmasters and you find the best person in there to coach you for a little bit. I wouldn't worry about that until you have a lot more money coming through or consistency on there. Because what I've seen from the vast majority of speakers is that they have a good talk, but they don't have a good business operations in order to get themselves booked consistently. That's the big thing that I would say on there is just a prioritization I would say on that front on there. So I didn't necessarily want to say they're all bad on there. I think there's, I have hired speaker coaches on there at different points in my career, but I, because I figured out the, the getting books side.
1: Good clarification. And I think yeah. the main takeaway, I'm not trying to say that you're trying to bash speaking, consulting businesses, but yeah. what was really taking, I think the front stage of this conversation is that stage time is important to improve your skills. And at the end of the day, this is not easy. And I think that we have our own new set of challenges. But I think, you know, you just got to be bullish on on where the market's running. So digital's here. I'm excited to get my hologram. I'm excited to speak in the metaverse. I'm excited to to jump into all this. I've got my Oculus ready. I was doing a tour of some metaverse spaces to speak in with Mitch Jackson just Mm. yesterday. And yeah, it's a crazy world. But what is not crazy is that it's difficult. It'll continue to be difficult. And for those people that actually put in the work and don't completely fall off the train, I think that there's room for those people as we continue on.
0: Yeah, and to add a positive note on this, because right now people are thinking, I have to go through 104 no's for one yes. The rest <laughs> Are we for- depressing everybody? <laughs> no, no, that's not what it is. In the beginning, it's going to be a lot more lopsided like that. But as your brand progresses, you'll be able to charge higher fees, but also your conversion rates will improve in terms of how many you reach out to. And on top of that, you get better footage, you get better pictures on your site, your social media brand will improve over time. And then eventually, a few people will start reaching out to you. Like I had a a large, actually, I could say the name, I think. I think so. Lexus reached out to me recently. I didn't get the deal on there, but I can quote Lexus a heck of a lot more than I can a nonprofit that I'm reaching out to on there that starts to happen as the brand improves on there. So the money comes in, then you can invest in branding or reinvesting it into your speaking business or the outbound approach. But I'm more just kind of pointing out like, hey, there's a cycle to it. And over time, it gets easier and easier. But
1: it's not like it's going to be like that way forever. It will improve. The future is bright. The future is amazing. The future has stages in mind. Well, Jeff, thank you for your engineering-based insights. It's always fun to connect. And I'm excited to see you on stage live whenever that happens yes. in the real world, maybe digital before then. But if somebody wants to reach out to you, learn more about what you do for speakers, do some research on you, where's the best way that they can get you?
0: My speaking site is at jeffjbutler.com, but the site for speakers is trinityfix.com, as in Trinity, as in the Matrix 4, which isn't that good, Trinity.
1: all Um, right well thank you jeff i appreciate it and for all of you out there don't be dismotivated or unmotivated as we're making up words here use this as an opportunity to see that we all have struggled through these changes we're all being shaped as speakers as we go through it but don't give up the fight it's a hard fight but it's a fight worthwhile to get up there and share your insights and inspire people to do whatever it is that you're doing to help solve the problem that they have jeff i appreciate you being here on episode number 99 feels good we're almost at that hundred that's great and i'm sure that the first few podcast episodes just like speeches were probably not the best but now we're getting good hopefully